Today is Monday, November 8th, uh, 2021. And uh, I want to dedicate this shir today. Um, this is the famous picture of the Rav teaching. It's the quintessential picture that they always use. And I, you know, I have a few scholarly achievements, but I really think this is my biggest achievement that I was able to identify this as years of work. When you look at the picture, you'll understand to identify every last student in the picture. Some we only have a hand, some we only have a, a bow tie, some we only have his nose, but I have them all. And uh, what hurts about the picture, this is 1960, there we are looking at the Rav B'dechilu Rechimu, and we thought it would last forever. And uh, I hate to say this, but uh, more than half the picture are gone or incapacitated. And number 16, I just got the news from Rabbi David Tversky, Tzvi Grona. Tzvi Grona just died. This is the uh, Moldot Evil from B'nai Brak. And I have to tell you, Tzvi Grona, if there ever was a year tzaddik, it was Tzvi Grona. He came from Seattle. It's a very well-known family in Seattle. Grona? Uh, uh, not Gro I'm saying Tzvi Grona, my friend. Ganawa, excuse me. Yeah, I'm confusing two people who are very dear to me. Tzvi Grona has gone already, who knows, maybe 10 years already. Wow. And uh, Tzvi Ganawa. Sviganawa came from a very eminent family from Seattle. The story is legendary, how the Orthodox community began in Seattle. Uh, I, I hope I remember it correctly, but it goes something like this, and it's an absolute true story. The boats would dock from Europe and let them off in uh, San Francisco. And those who arrived there, Seattle already had a few Jews, so a few more Jews moved there. Sri's grandfather would go from house to house. There was the Jews lived up the hill, down the hill near the center of Seattle, which today is still the center of the world. That's uh, uh, Microsoft is there. That's where uh, what's that coffee? What you get all over uh, Starbucks? Starbucks began there. It's still their main store is right there, and and Boeing is in Seattle, and the. Down the hill were very wealthy people. And his grandfather would go from house to house on their clothes you're throwing out and, you know, fix it and resell it. And one time he comes to this Gentile home, banker, and his wife gives him clothes and he goes through the clothes and in the pocket he finds cash, tens and tens of dollar bills. Well, he goes back to the house and says to the lady, you know, you gave me your husband's clothes, but you didn't check the pockets. And he gives him back the suit. Well, he gets, the banker comes home, sends for him, and he says, if you ever need a loan to start a business, you come to me. This is what I call honesty. He started a business, and the rest is history. He did very well. And the Ganawas became the mainstay of the Seattle community. 
and Tzvi came to yeshiva. You know, we were wild New York kids. All right, I, I have to admit, I, I wasn't as wild as some of the others, but uh, Tzvi was a zay edel, a zay fine. It was unbelievable. Azam matmid. And, and the edelkeit in him. And the, he came in Aliyah at a very early age, went into B'nai Brak, and I can see from uh, the Modat Evo, he became a real B'nai Brak Jew. Beautiful description of him. etc., etc. And I quote that part of the Modat Evo because next Sunday Shear, you're going to see which way we're going. I consider it the most important shield I've ever given my life, and I won't solve any problems. I'll only give you sources and open it up for you. But it's Rebmeisha, uh, you'll see. But uh, it breaks my heart, and I want to thank uh, David Tversky for letting me know, and he should be an inspiration to all of us. Again, I repeat, uh, David, I, D- Rabbi Tversky, are you doing anything big with your life? If you would take that picture and do research on the 29 students, you would have a bestseller. The class of 1960 revisited. What became of them? You have all the leaders of YU right-wing, all the leaders of YU centrists, and all the leaders of Chovevei Torah right in that picture. And then you have to deal. Who was the Rav? And I'll give you the letter that he wrote to Irving Greenberg. It's Greenberg, and you'll have a, a bestseller. You'll be able to go back to Seattle and uh, buy out some of the property. Okay, I see. I, are you feeling okay, by the way? Just shake your head. Good. Okay. Baruch Hashem. All right. Now, I, I also want to mention something else that um, I mentioned. I spoke last week about Shlomo Levin. Uh, from Talbian, what he, he's the one who invited the Rebetzin to lecture in Israel the first time. So I found out we're related. <laughs> my brother sends me an email, my nephew sends me an email. His grandson is married to my nephew's daughter, Dr. Zev Rothkoff, the dentist. His daughter, Bruria, is married to the grandson, Omer, if I believe is his name, of Shlomo Levin. And uh, Shlomo Levin. And I, I met Omar, he's a graduate of Machon Lev. I met him on Machon Lev property a few months ago. Okay, so it's a small world. Also, I mentioned last week that um, uh, when it comes to the Sfardim, remember we were talking about mikvah last week, and how the mikvah ladies were crying when uh, uh, Leah went to mikvah for the first time and uh, I, I mentioned how important it is and I, I threw out that more Sfardiyot go to mikvah than a Shomrat Shabbat. So if you think I was making it up, uh, Dr. Bill Gwietz, almost 22 years ago I bought two paintings by Alan Kleiman and it, one of a Shabbos candles, one of Paris, from a gallery that was open on Shabbat. The owner of a Sfardi put on Tefillin Daily and his wife went to Mikvah. I really did not know Sfardim back then and I was shocked. And that's we Ashkenazim. I had the same shock in 1969 
when we bought our apartment in Berlin 18, the person who worked for us uh, p putting in uh, closets and whatnot, the carpenter, we got the talk, he's from Morocco, his grandfather was a great Rav, a great Makubal, he was a good Mechalel Shabbos, his wife, uh, Mechalel Shabbos, but Mikvah, she went to Mikvah. And then I saw statistics, I hope maybe it changed for the better, but it's at least they go to Mikvah, Kalakavod. Uh, in, in relation to what I mentioned yesterday about uh, uh, Venice, so uh, Mark uh, wrote to me, <laughs> Rebbe, you mentioned being in Venice, and he mentions Danny Fano from Lido Venizio. I believe he studied in BMT. He married a woman named Shoshana from Nice, France. Their common language was French, as his French was better than her Italian, and, our, and, and he always spoke to them in Hebrew. Their Hatuna was in one of the Renaissance shuls in the Venetian ghetto, and I was present. Marklich was present. They went by gondola to the reception. Okay, so added support. It's worth seeing Venice if we can ever travel again. A city built on top of water. And I also thank Rabbi Grinstein for what I mentioned yesterday. You make a kid from, and uh, within two years he's not eating in your house. You, 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 you don't have the humrus that he now has. So he quotes Rabbi Lichtenstein, who uh, spoke about the same phenomenon. Parents who have sacrificed so much in order to maintain Shabbat observance uh, suddenly find that their homes are not kosher enough or their kiddish cups not large enough. And then he speaks about Brooklyn where you had many important rabbis but all their shuls had no mechitzat and later they turned the shuls around but it took years and, and, and Rabbi Lichtenstein calls attention to this to the children from these areas who uh, don't have a karatatov to the generation of rabbis who led shoes with problematic issues and turned them around to Allah's abiding communities. And he said later there were children of these shoes later in life due to all kinds of influences who wouldn't eat by the rabbis that it wasn't kosher enough despite the fact these rabbis were mainly or at least partially the catalyst for them being what they are today. All right, this is part of life, and uh, don't, don't misunderstand me. When my Talmud told me off at the Kotel, I'm wearing a kippah spruga, I didn't get overly upset. Baruch Hashem, he was studying in Itri, and it's a sad comment that in Itri, in 1970, they had to put you down if you were wearing a kippah spruga. I hope they're wiser in Itri today, and if not, we'll live with it. Torah and Yerit Shemayim will win out. Okay, let's pick up where we left off. Today is an important lecture. Um, the Rebbitzin, and what's fascinating here, I'm quoting again, I'm picking up where I left off last week, quoting from Central Park to Sinai, How I Found My Jewish Soul, by Roy and Linda Newberg, I give his wife credit to. What's fascinating here, here are people who reveal their innermost feelings and you see the process of tshuva, and I, I, I'm somewhat in the middle. In other words, uh, Charlie and, and Morty, you're, you're coming from a world where 
it with total Shabbat and Kashrut and Tarat Mishpacha and Devan Hashem Zu Halacha. I'm not about Shiva, but I can understand the Balchiva movement because I'm coming from the Bronx. It's like Mark coming from Holyoke. Uh, I've been a Shema Shabbos since the age of 11, I would imagine. I, I've been davening three times a day since the age of 11. All right, uh, my father could barely read Hebrew. He davened in English uh, as I brought him back to Torah Hashem. But I, I, I so appreciate how their eyes open. And, and you see those words, what happened in 73, when that Jew, we don't even know where, where, where that Jew is today, Lampert, where his descendants are, Lambert, I should say. And, he, and, and they have the television on, and Israel is marching into Egypt and Syria, and there's Newberger sitting there with a blank stare, and he yells at him, what kind of Jew are you? And those words penetrated. And then a few weeks later, a few months later, the Rebetzin is coming to upstate New York and the uh, people in his community in Connecticut tell him, why don't you go hear the Rebetzin? And he goes to hear and it pierces his heart. He emails the Rebetzin, what do I do next? And the Rebetzin says, you have to come and learn Torah, participate in the Shiurim. They travel to Flatbush, once a week, even though gas is uh, rationed at that time, the Arabs played games with the world, and uh, she makes, they make the trip to Israel with the Rebetzin, the first trip that Shlomo Levine arranged, come speak to the soldiers. Now, let me pick up, and, and his description, how he sees people putting on tefillin for the first time, he sees two kitchens for the first time, he sees Shabbat for the first time, and, and here it's overwhelming how, I told you, my wife and I were ashamed. We came back from Beit Shemesh, and it's a Talmud of mine and his wife, and he's practically my age. I taught him, I taught him, uh, through his sons. His sons were my Talmudim, and through them he became my Talmud. And, and their Balei Tshuva, and, and their love of Shabbos, they're what we take for granted, what we take for granted. And... Um, he describes a situation here which I can so identify with because I saw this at the Kotel in 68 or 69. It could be when I taught or it could be when I settled. And uh, I was flabbergasted. And he tells the story that one of the places where the Rebetzin spoke was an Air Force base. Uh, I, he doesn't identify the base, but I, I also, in my career in the Army, uh, gave Sherman in quite a number of Air Force bases. There was one very big one in Sinai that was major. That one later was moved when we let, when Menachem Begin gave up Sinai and it was rebuilt down south uh, with American help. The other big Air Force bases near where you live, uh, which, you know, it's a big secret <laughs> that there's a major Air Force base nearby. El Nof, I believe it's called. And I, I, so we don't know which base it was, but at the base, one of the young men who was a mafakade was a Yemenite person, was a captain, a Yemenite Jew. And uh, he started talking with the Rebetzin and the people she brought from America, and uh, he described how in 1920 his parents, his grandfather, Grandmother, young people started walking and walked all the way to Eretz Israel on foot. 
camels and donkeys until they got to the land. The pilgrimage took months. And uh, they brought with them a Torah scroll and uh, he was amazed when he saw that this Yemenite could stand at any angle and read from the Torah. And he asked the Yemenite, and I remember seeing this at the Kotel, and the, the, I think they did it on purpose at the Kotel because the tourists would always come around and were so attracted. And uh, he asked, how do you do it? And he explained that in Yemen they were so poor they couldn't afford to have too many books. So in every family there was one book. So let's say there were five people in the family looking around at the Chumash. Each one sat at a different position. So each week you took a different place. So once you're used to sitting, I read from here. I can't read from there, but if you sit here and you sit here and you sit here, you learn how to read from all sides. And, and he says, today the grandson flew over the desert beyond the speed of sound, but he still reads from that old Torah from, from any position. And of course, this is Israel. This opens your heart. It opens your heart to Kibbutzkalyat. It opens your heart to being a Jew. And then he describes how the mission comes to an end. They return to America. They arrive at Kennedy Airport. The Rebbitzins, father and mother, are waiting to greet them. There was Zadie with his reassuring smile and his long white beard. And then they go back to Cromwell, Connecticut, and here's the major decision that they can't go on with this life anymore. And, 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 and this takes guts, this takes courage. The Rav, uh, in one of his Tshuva uh, Drashat, developed the theme, why Tshuva is so difficult. And he told the story from Boston. And you got to remember, when the Rav came to Boston, Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, I should call him Rabbi Doctor, my classmate, Professor uh, Soloveitchik, Chaimka. So you know that with all his learning and all his knowledge, academic and Talmud Torah, but his most famous work is Rupture and Reconstruction. Uh, I think there's going to be a new edition of it shortly, at least uh, that's what I've heard. And it's now uh, 25 years since he originally published it. And uh, he describes this in his work that you met in Boston good Jews, learned Jews from the old country. I hope their homes were kosher, but their businesses were open. And Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they davened, remember Chaim's description, they davened with more kavana than when he davened in Panovich Yeshiva. I visited Panovich. So... Uh, the Rav was describing how in his Chavrashas, he gave his shir Sunday morning, the Chavrashas, Mr. Abelow organized it, was the head of the Chavrashas. And uh, one time, a balabas, these Yudapesha balabatim break down and they cry and they say, Rebbe Dubiskerecht, you're absolutely right. I have to go back and become a Shabbos. And the Rav says, so what's the problem? And, and they say to him, Rebbe, our wives will think we're crazy. I'm living it in Yiddish. I'm trying to say it in English. There's a sugar. 
Our children will say we're crazy. The whole environment will look at us and say we're crazy. And, and could you imagine here you are, a well-to-do couple, owning a newspaper, quite successful, in, in a nice WASP community, and suddenly you're giving it all up and, and you're moving to a community where there's an orthodox shul and, uh, you know, this takes guts. And he says they quickly sold their home and uh, their parents were angry at them. They gave it away below cost. Had they held out longer, they might have gotten a better price. I should say below market value. And uh, it didn't... It, they made that decision, and, and the husband and wife, like I said last week, it's not just he made it or she made it. With all the inherent problems where one becomes religious and one doesn't, they made that decision together, and before you know it, they bought a home to be near the Rebbitson in North Woodmere. And this was not going to be another European ideal. We were going to step off the merry-go-round and leave the amusement park altogether. We were going to abandon the way of life all of us had known exclusively since we were born. We intended to move to a community where we could be close to our spiritual mentor and become Torah-observant Jews. Now, there's another paragraph here which is also very important. You see, how does the world look at this? Could you imagine you're telling your neighbors, you're telling your friends, and forget about the non-Jews, talking about you're telling the Jews. Do you know what the word they will say to you? You're part of a cult. It's a cult. And here, this is such a challenge to us to present the concept that this is the way a Jew has to live. This is the way a Jew has to live since time immemorial. This is the only way the Jew will survive. This is not a cult. This is Judaism. And you've got to give the Newburgers all the credit in the world. Okay, with the Newburgers, the rest is history. They go on to live in North Woodmere, become Balabatim, Four children, all integrated into the Torah world, Machatanim with the Jungreises, and that's one story. I want to take another story that also captures the Rebbitzin and people reveal their souls, and uh, there's a part of the story which is very personal to me, uh, as you will see. Lauren, I'm quoting now from going back to the original book, the volume that just came out this year, The Rebbitzin, the story of Rebbitzin, Esther Jungreis, her life, her vision, her legacy, Rabbi Nachman Seltzer, published by, I believe, Mesorah, an offshoot of Art Scroll. Now, I'm beginning on page 379, and these are real names. Uh, in, in the book, uh, it tells you, and someone didn't want their name, but these people are proud. Use my name. Lauren Feinberg Hills from Los Angeles. Growing up, her mother used to read Rebison S. D. Jungreis's book around their Shabbos table. So from the time Lauren was a little girl, she uh, constantly heard about the Rebbitzin. And now she comes to New York 
and uh, they want to set her up with a young man named Daniel. And uh, who was Daniel? Raised on Manhattan's Upper East Side. And he, she writes, or he writes, or the person who interviewed them, Rabbi Seltzer, through a series of events, he ended up becoming religious and flying to Israel after college. All right, then, this is part of the miracle of modern-day Israel. Israel, the Rav spoke about this in Code of Dido Fake. The fact that Israel's here, Israel's in the news, it wakes up Jewish feeling in totally assimilated Jews. It's hard to explain it. Uh, I can tell you one little story. Uh, I have a grandson married to a young lady who is half Persian and half American. In other words, her mother's from Persia, got out when the sh right before the Shah fell, and that part of their family insisted on coming to Israel. A good deal of the family went to uh, Saint, uh, not Saint Louis, New Orleans, New Orleans, and they had a business there. And uh, this lady who married my grandson, her mother and grandparents went to visit the family in New Orleans. So they come into the Chabad Shul, that's where they daven, and she meets a young man there from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, who uh, raised totally assimilated home at Cherry Hill. I know Cherry Hill inside out. I rabbinated on either side of it, first in, Philadelphia, in, in Lower Marion and afterwards in uh, Maplewood, South Orange. And uh, this, his sister intermarried, and he was a very bright guy, typical American college graduate, <laughs> decided to go to Israel came to Jerusalem at the age of 21 when he graduated college. All right, the rest is history. They met there. He was getting a doctorate at Tulane University, very bright fellow. And uh, the rest of the story is Zichron Yaakov, where they've lived, uh, except when Microsoft sent them to help in an office in Massachusetts, straighten them out, and then they came back to Zichron Yaakov, worked in Haifa. But go and explain it. So here, this kid grew up in the Upper East Side. The Upper East Side already, when you're part of New York, there's a little bit more Yiddishkeit. All right, the Upper East Side never had as much Yiddishkeit as the Upper West Side, but Yiddishkeit there was there. So he heard something, Judaism goes to Israel, and he becomes from. Now, you can imagine what this kid has to put up with. His parents are looking at him, if you're living on the Upper East Side, Believe me, it's not the Lower East Side with uh, no attempt to offend uh, Elliot or Vic. But it's not the Lower East Side, it's the Upper East Side. And his parents are looking at him, he's like in a cult. And, and they were very skeptical of his life choices. He was learning Torah in a yeshiva in Jerusalem. But then, who started lecturing on the Upper East Side? Remember what we told you after the Madison Square Garden? We'll come to the garden yet. The Rebbitson is now lecturing regularly in Kehillat Yeshurun, and this is before and in addition to when they buy Hineni, the building on the Upper West Side. And his mother meets the Rebbitson. And uh, it opened the, the mother's eyes to, to what Torah is, what Judaism is what continuity is, what the Holocaust was, what the state of Israel was. And, uh, you know, the mother started to understand. 
the kid was a total Shemesh Shabbos, and the mother was already hearing stories from the Rebetzin, what Shabbat was like in the old country. And stories remember the Chala in the concentration camp, Lower Lenu, that we spoke about with the Rebetzin's father. And, and he, this young man credits the Rebetzin bringing the world of authentic Torah Judaism to the modern-day culture of Manhattan's Upper East Side. My family's life was completely altered through the Rebetzin's efforts. All right, now, now he's an older single individual. I've been dealing with you, <laughs> trying to get a few more mitzvahs into my life. So yesterday I dealt with one older single individual. Uh, God, he, he's telling me he, he broke off with this girl. He's no youngster. And uh, she's crying. I know that I hit him hard. That was yesterday, this morning. I called another Talmud who's no youngster and uh, tried to provide. I get the usual answer, Charlie. They always tell you. I got the usual answer this morning. He's, you know, in the midst of something. It's the midst of, I would tell you how old he is. We punish Shalom, he's half my age. But he's, he's, he's two-thirds your age, I'll put it that way. Okay, so uh, he's, an, he's an older fellow already. And uh, they want to set him up with Lauren. One day someone suggested a girl named Lauren to me. But she was 11 he was 11 years older. Her mother, out in the coast, she haven't called her mother, suggested a shidduch or this. Mother said, 11 years older? Absolutely not. So the uh, fella, Daniel, I believe the name, said, you know what, I'm going to present you with a list of references who I am. And the girl sees that one of the names is the Rebetzin. And she says to her mother, it's the Rebetzin that you read me her books. And she says, all right, if he says the Rebetzin is a reference, you can go out with him. And he takes him, he takes her to the Rebetzin's lecture in Kehila Jishurin. Excuse me. And there's the girl sitting at the Rebetzin's lecture. Could you imagine the feeling? I hate to tell you the story. It once happened to me at the Shtiblach. I was there with my grandson, my eldest grandson. I still remember. Oh, no, the one who just got married. You did. Everyone else was married. It was there, Dominic Mincha, with you did. And suddenly uh, a stranger comes over to me. Are you Rav Rakefet? Oh, yeah. Are you always Amerin Rakefet? He starts to cry. I, I said, what, what? He explained to me, he's been listening to me for years, and no one realizes I'm real, I'm alive. I mean, I'm Baruch Hashem, I'm kicking, I eat, I drink, I sleep, I daven, I learn. I'm alive and kicking. And like, so here the girl is overwhelmed. But by the way, it's very impressed impressed my grandson, so I'll put it that way. It was, it was worth the story, worth being embarrassed. So uh, she's at the Rebetzin's lecture, and she starts to cry, Lauren.
Daniel makes up his mind on the spot, this is the girl I'm going to marry, and he quotes the Rebbitzin, if a woman can cry from hearing Torah, if her heart is touched and you see her cry, then she has a pure heart. And this girl began to cry. And this leads me, let me pause for a second, in uh, in Chayesara. All do we shine him a troubled uh, Eliezer if, if she'll tell, if he, give me to drink and the camels to drink. And is he allowed to do this? This is nichush, right or wrong. Um, uh, you, you have to trust in God and don't make conditions. But uh, the pshat is very simple. He wanted to see Hamidat. And if a lady will come along and spontaneously give you, uh, please drink, and and your camels will drink, this is a sign, marry her. The midah there. I always used to tell students when they go out. I used to tell the girls, you know, how he's going out with this boy. He's dressed nicely. He speaks properly. He doesn't curse. He claims he studies in the Rav Shea. I used to say that when when I came back to visit the Rav in '88, I fainted. There were like 120 people sitting there. I can swear maybe 10 who sat near the rub understood what he was saying were able to hear him even with the microphone. But the rest, I said, gee, you're in the, that's great, you're in the rub shi, it sounds good for shidduch. I'm a Talmud of the rub, all right. Yesh Talmudim, yesh Talmudim. So uh, the, no question that uh, these were the proper midah. This, this was the girl, this beautiful, she cried. They marry, they live happily ever after, their grandparents today, etc. But I want to just show you this up close. A volume came out this year, Magen Banim, 2021. The author is David McGenza. And... Uh, what David writes here, and I, I have to get through it, uh, it's very difficult for me. I knew David, I know David, I knew Gloria Zichon. Did anyone know David and Gloria McGensa? And uh, Gloria Satekit. And uh, part of the volume is, and I give David credit, he remarried and he dedicates the volume to his second wife, has a very nice second marriage both uh, widowed, I understand, and, uh, but he brings homage to Gloria's memory, and Gloria was at Sadekid, David who studied with me uh, here in Gris, and she came close to Gloria as well, she asked me all her shilas, and, and he tells the following story in his eulogy, growing, I'm quoting from page 28, Growing up at opposite ends of the state of Missouri, about 240 miles apart, we traveled over 6,000 miles to meet in Jerusalem. Gloria and I were both guests of her aunt and uncle in Jerusalem for Shabbat Chazon, 18th of July, 1969. Sitting at the Shabbat table among the songs that were sung, we Yerushalayim shall zahav. 
the realization that after two years of singing Yerushalayim Shel Zahav in Kansas City, and now Gloria was singing that song in Jerusalem, brought Gloria to tears. At that point, I realized that there was something very special about Gloria. So it was our mutual love for Jerusalem, which was the basis of my attraction to Gloria. And um, just add this to the Jungreis volume, uh, Gloria and David McGenzer, Gloria Zechrona Levracha Tzadeket, and David Yibadel Lechaim Aruchim V'tovim. But what a beautiful story and how it matches David and his story how he decided to marry the young lady who became his wife. What I cut myself off on, I would often tell my students, the young ladies, how do you know that the person is a decent person, a good person? And I would always arrive at that, advise them, you go out to eat. Watch how he tips the waitress. Okay? Watch how he speaks to the waitress. I remember I, uh, we were out eating with a dear rabbinic couple, the Alberts and Roy, and it was in the uh, Upper West Side, uh, I forget the name, maybe you can tell, fast food, farm food, something, uh, something to that effect. And this girl was serving us, and uh, Roy kept on asking her what she's doing. She's going to college, she's working to save the tips, to pay for her textbooks, whatever, tuition. And when it was over, let's say the tip should have been $10, Roy gave her $20. And this girl looked at him and said, Rabbi, uh, maybe you meant to give me 10 You know, but no, no, that's for you. I was very moved by the story of how you're putting money together to go to college. And you see, these are the little aspects of life that a person doesn't realize. They're revealing their inner soul, their inner being, their inner decency by the way they act. And I have to apologize to the drivers in Newark. I, from the time I started driving, I would always go out of my way to let someone pull in, you know, pulling out. They, and you stop, you let them in, you wave them in. It's a chesed. Here it is, it's a big chesed. There's so much traffic. And you wave them in. Sometimes they wave back to you. Sometimes they take for granted. Kumse, you know, they deserve all this. So one time in Newark, and I had a clergy sign in back of my car. So a car overtakes me and he screams at me, the hell would you clergy the way you drive? So, but it reveals who he is, and it reveals who the rabbi is, the clergy driving. And uh, it, he, he goes on and on. The Rebbitson had a very poetic way of reading leading to our experiences during the Holocaust. They saw the Rebetzin as the heroine who rose from the ashes to rebuild the world that was destroyed. They saw her as someone who maintained her faith and loved Hashem and as someone who was incredibly holy and they admired her no end. And, and here too, you see, you get the feeling this was what was so unique about her and so special about her that people who survived the Holocaust 
Some could never talk about it. Some could talk about it, they were very bitter, very caustic. And some could use it to inspire. And this was the Rebetzin. Now, there's an unbelievable Gemara, Chagiga Daftet Amidbet. And this Gemara I, rings in my ears one of the greatest uh, yardside rushes that the Rebbe Vigega was the early 70s. And uh, Manny Holzer sent me a, a real a copy of it, and it was overwhelming. It's been published subsequently in Shevun Lesecha Abba Murray. But the Rav took the Gemara, Chagiga Daftet Amidbet. And the Gemara in Chagiga, it's quoting a Pasuk from Malachi. The, let me quote it exactly, the Shaftamura Itan Ben Sadik Larasha Ben Oved Elohim Laasha Lo Avodo. And you should come, and the Prophet says, you will know the difference between a Tzadik and a Russia between someone who really worships God and someone who doesn't worship God. And, and the Gemara asks, well, what does it mean? What is exactly, what is this talking about? Uh, one who worships God, one who doesn't worship God, what is the difference between them? And the Gemara says something amazing. Omalei, avdo velo avdo, taveyot sadike gemurim ninhu that uh, there are people who worship God and people who don't worship God and both of them are tzaddikim. But what's the difference between them? The Oved Elohim goes over the Gemara 101 times. The one who doesn't serve God properly goes over the Gemara 100 times. And the Rav asked, is there a big difference between a hundred times to a hundred and one times? Here we have gentlemen, we all studied for our doctorates and had oral exams, so you prepare them and heard of it, I you go a hundred times, Gnug. And the Rav, I hear the Rav ringing in my ears in Yiddish, a hundred and one, hundred and two, hundred and three, hundred and four, what is the Yuntashek? What is the difference? Some people, they finish class. They walk away. They're done. Finished. Class is over. And other people, they can't leave the Rebbe. They can't leave the classroom. And, and, I, and, and this is the difference. This is the Oveda Lokim, and this is the one who's not big. All right. Yotzeit Zazayim. But the overwhelming Ibigegebenkeits, how can we translate that? The overwhelming sincerity, devotion, dedication, it's not the same. And, and I'll, I'll never, and this is a very powerful Gemara. And I saw it with my own eyes. I told you a thousand times over when the rub finished Shia. So uh, the class exited. The, the Charlie will remember in that room where the rub taught, there were two exits. There was the front and the, towards the middle, the back of the room, middle back. Today it's two separate rooms. They knocked, the, they built the wall, more space. But uh, so they had to exit it. But the handful of guys, they didn't leave the room. They, they 
sat there with the Rav and, and questions were still being asked and only when the Rav got up did the handful get up with the Rav and then we walked him out we walked him across the street uh, you know he stayed at his mother's house but you could see the difference there were those all right, and there were those the dedication and here he describes this with the Rebetzin that uh, later they would go to the Rebetzin to hear her Hineni on the Upper West Side and uh, yeah, there'd be a big lecture the room would be filled lecture would end and only a handful would go upstairs with the Rebetzin to her office the clock struck 12 and now we were on another journey the room had been filled with hundreds of people a short while before but now virtually empty except for a small group and then the Rebetzin would let her hair down and you know the lecture is one level but then she would start to talk much deeper what worried her, what concerned her, the, the direction of the entire world, what were her concerns, be it 9-11 or anti-Semitism in America, she was always afraid that one day there would be another Holocaust. And she did not hesitate to voice that fear. So here we have another description of fascinating couple, uh, not a couple made from by the Rebetzin, but a couple that interacted with the Rebetzin and it enhanced, intensified, supplemented, and complemented their frumkite. And it was all the Rebetzin. Okay. Let's go a drop further and we're going to hit something here that uh, is one of a kind. One of a kind, absolutely. So here you have this lady and she's functioning uh, on the public level. As we said last week, her children started growing up and, and this is a real problem with a woman who wants a career. I see it with my granddaughters-in-law. Um, you have children, you don't want to leave them. And these are all women who, uh, I'm talking about my family, all women with very advanced degrees and very capable, and uh, family needs money. And uh, when people consult with me, women, I tell them, uh, you know what? Go into medicine and you'll adjust your hours. I always find you want to reach your doctor, which days is a year and how many hours? It's a bit of a runaround till you finally connect. In men, there are a flock of women in medicine today. I'm told that in, uh, someone gave me the percentage in the Technion, it's like two-thirds women in each class and one-third men today. That's where my grandson met his wife. They were classmates in medical school in the Technion. So uh, it's, it's a real problem, but she was a mother and then later, uh, when the kids were older, she started becoming a public personality with the encouragement of, as we said last week, her father, who asked Gedolei Yisrael, and the right husband, who knew how to keep in the background. And there too, you have to give credit. Uh, we spoke about this last week, and I cannot stress it enough. 
when you're married to a great woman, you have to enjoy the limelight. And I see in my family some of my my own children are loud. Baruch Hashem. Now, the Rebetzin was always a Rebetzin. In other words, forget about the public persona. They got married. They had to support themselves. And the new shoe was organized in North Whitmere. Uh, as I told you, I feel the tremendous sense of identity because I, someone sent me a link to a video uh, which is on YouTube and it's just amazing what you can find on YouTube. I don't know, there must be bad things on the computer because there's a lot of uh, anti-computer in B'nai Brak and Jerusalem and elsewhere, but I only see wonderful, wonderful things on the computer. So it's interviews with the founders of the synagogue. Maybe it was done 10 years ago. The Rebetzin was no longer alive. But these people were exactly like the people I encountered when I started turning the soil in Maplewood, South Orange, New Jersey in 1962. I don't think anyone there was a Talmud Chacham. Maybe a few families were Shemer Shabbat. Okay. So they wound up with me, and I'm now quoting from the book on the Rebetzin, beginning on page 251. Now, the Rebetzin describes the tremendous problem when they came to Widmir with the Mechitzah. So this leads me to believe that it was not a shtibble, it's not family-owned, but it was a communal shul who turned to, to the Jungreis's captured the position. Again, it would be interesting to know what the real story is, why it didn't take a why you candidate, why Dafka they took the Jungreis family. Uh, I can tell you from my own experience, the Rabnit, that many times why you people did not get a Rabnit because they insisted on a higher salary. So it could be that uh, he was a freelancer. Again, I don't know. Uh, he was not a YU graduate. His smicha was from Europe. We knew, we knew Reb Mishulam from Bnei Akiva already. At that time, we knew he had smicha. He was older. The Rebetzin was a year older than me. But he was maybe six, seven years older. And um, they wound up in North Whitmere. The biggest problem, and this is a problem that haunted every rabbi, in the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, was the Mechitza. Um, the Mechitza problem, which I've lectured on extensively, I don't have to repeat to years and years of lectures, but to put it very simply, you see the progress, so-called progressive world, I call it the, uh, the, the digressive world, the world of Aveda Zara. We have the world today. You have the world right here in the Knesset, right here in the government. God have mercy. A man is a woman, a woman is a man, a man, men, women, women. There's, we're all the same, we're no different. Men can give birth, women can give birth. God, God have mercy. And, and God is destroying the world, no one pays attention. Why did this corona happen? What was the mobble? What did the madrashim? What is the gemara? What the chazal have to say? No one pays any attention. So uh, they had a tremendous problem with the mechitza. And the fact that the Rebetzin was such a personality already, the Balambatan thought they, uh, you know, we can get away with Adam Mechitza, separate seating, have a small, you know, Mechitza, you won't even believe this, but there were shoes that had a Mechitza 36 inches. That's what the Balambatan agreed to. 
Bidyevid, maybe it's a Makitsa. I my shul I began, I think it was fifty inches already. That was the Ravasak Bidyevid, fifty, ten tvachim. Uh, that was a right, but I have to admit, in the years I was in Banklewood already, I raised the Mechitza. So uh, it, by the time I left, it was uh, 55 inches, but the top part was glass, so there were no complaints. But uh, this was a problem. Now, the Rebbitzin was very forceful, and uh, the female members of the Kehiler enlisted the Rebbitzin after all, she was truly a progressive woman to take their side. She told them that the Mechitza would remain and that there was nothing to discuss. There would be no compromising in our Torah. That was the name of the shul. Torah was Torah and the halacha was halacha no matter what. All right, and they went out in that battle and they remained there and uh, they're starting to function and here uh, is an unbelievable story on page 253. Uh, that year, uh, Halloween fell on a Friday. The family was sitting down to Shabbat dinner when the doorbell rang. Shabbos meals were a big deal in the Ingrice home. The Rebbitson loved when the family sang Zmirat and insisted that they sing a lot. In fact, her family sang Smiris. In fact, if it happened that they sang a Zema when she was out of the room, she made them sing it all over again. All right. Suddenly the doorbell rings and she tells her son Yisrael, who was 10 years old at the time, answer the door. Even though who rings the doorbell? Shabbos, they don't know, but the people are ringing. You have to answer. And this boy her little boy opens the door and a bunch of neighborhood kids are standing there trick or treating. So, and they're dressed up in costumes, Batman, Robin, Snow White, other characters. Good Shabbos, the Rebbitson called out, warmly greeting the surprise kids. They had no idea what was going on. It's Shabbos today. Do you know what this is? Are any of you Jewish? Most of the men said, I'm Jewish, except for one girl who replied, quote, my mommy told me I'm only half Jewish, end quote. I want each of you to take a candy, and I'm going to teach you how to make a bracha. You have to have, you have, to have such feeling for this. No, how would we react? The Shabbos, the doorbell rings, kids address, Batman... But the, this was me and the Rabnet. I tell you, I identify with the Rebbitson 100%. And, and tell your parents that tonight is Shabbat and that you came to the rabbi's house and the rabbi's wife gave you Yomi candy. Can you do that? And tell them we have a Hebrew school in our shul and they should send you here to learn what it means to be a Jew. Can you give them that message? The kids nodded. One of the kids actually followed through, informing his parents of the evening's event and about the Hebrew school at the rabbi shul. His parents registered him, became a student. And do you know what happened with that kid? Many years later, 
Rabbi Yisrael Jungreis, the 10-year-old kid who opened the door, met, met the man who had been that kid, and he was blown away, totally ben Torah. And the kid said, quote, I'm probably one of the only people in the world who became religious because of Halloween. All right? Can you top that story? Can you top that story? You have to, when, 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 when you teach how to outreach, you have to ask the class, how can you become religious through Halloween? And you have to tell the story. And, and this, there's no two ways about it, that if we're open, if we're decent, if we're good, if we're upright, if you believe in Torah, we have an unbelievable product to push, but we have to be a living Torah. The Chavetz Chaim is that. You don't need me to tell it to you. You know the Chavetz Chaim story. They came to the Chavetz Chaim and they asked him how, Talmud them asked him, Rebbe, we can how can we influence others? And the Chavetz Chaim said, it's like a cup, a cup of water. You fill the cup, and then it overflows. First, you have to fill yourself with Torah, your Shemayim, decency, decency, excuse me, <coughs> decency. And then the cup overflows, and this is exactly what they're talking about. Now, here, and there's more material here at one time and another Halloween, <laughs> the kids knocked on the door and the Rebison says, you don't really have to celebrate Halloween. We're Jewish kids, we have Purim. And Purim, we not only dress up, but we sing and we dance and we have candy and we drink and we have wine. And you know, she, she used the Halloween as an opener, covered Shem Shemayim. And that was the Rebison. Now Jack, this is for Jack Levenstein. This is your question. Page 255. Here he describes Rabbi Meshulam Yungreis. Rabbi Meshulam Yungreis was a phenomenal Talmud Chacham. He had been granted smicher at a young age back in Hungary and could have delivered a shear that would challenge the sharpest yeshiva students but he chose to dedicate his life to teaching basic halacha to the members of his community. Although he was a man who possessed, the com who possessed a command of the entire Talmud at his fingertips, Rabbi Jungreis was mostly appreciated for his unique kindness, his extraordinary devotion to his community, his homespun quips and anecdotes, even now, years after the rabbi passed away, his witticisms are still fondly remembered. He enjoyed using lines like, quote, you may not feel you have a reason to smile, but smile anyway, and Hashem will give you a reason. Another one of his favorites, you don't have to hear everything Hashem gave you two ears in one and out the other ear. And, and he knew how to stand in the background. His wife, in this case, was the Sar Hachutz. 
he was the Sahapnim. She spoke all over the world, he spoke in the shul. He was a rabbi, he was a person, he had uh, mitleid, uh, help me out, new English, mitleid, uh, uh, sensitivity for others, but mitleid is more than that. I think it's a German word to begin with that was picked up in Yiddish. And, and, and this, there's another story here on page 256 that resonated so strongly with me when uh, the rabbi died, and he died, I think, in 1996. In fact, remember I told you last week, I think it was 696, I don't want to spend time checking it out now, but he was dead a while already, and uh, she outlived him by, uh, by about 20 years, a good 20 years. And when he died during the shiva, a, 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 how old was the girl? I think she was like eight years old. An eight-year-old girl showed up at the shiva, and the little girl started to cry. And everyone wondered why this girl, all right, she comes from a family in the shul, she was in the Hebrew school, but why so much emotion? Why, why crying? And the girl explained that she has no one to help her with her homework now. The girl came from a home where, like the typical American family, knew nothing of Yiddishkeit, nothing of our sources, for whatever reasons, like in Maplewood, South Orange, they belonged to an Orthodox show. All right? And the girl went to Talmud Torah. Who helped her with her homework? She couldn't ask her father, couldn't ask her mother. Rabbi Jungreis, Rabbi Mishulam. And this brought back memories that uh, I've mentioned before over the decades of teaching, and I mentioned it again, it brought back very strong memories. I told you I grew up in 2115 Washington Avenue. If you look at uh, Washington, the cover, I designed the cover, and the picture of Jerusalem, Washington, the Rehob Washington, I took. But the one of Washington Avenue, my Talmud, Dr. Norman, I write this in the introduction, Dr. Norman Gull took it, because he said, Rebbe, it's too dangerous for you to go back. If I go and something happens, no big deal. You know, his life, Norm, he's, a, he's divorced. He's been divorced for years. A very, a, a very interesting divorce where he gets along with his, uh, his wife and her new husband. Uh, but, but divorced he is, alone he is. He said, no, if anything happens to me, it's no big loss. But I don't want anything to happen to you. So he took that picture. So I grew up 2151, there was a big building. There was a front staircase and a back staircase and a five, five, six floors and so many tenants, Jew, Gentile. And uh, the front of the building, there lived a man, Gavri Gabriel, uh, I don't want to mention his last name, although it's history today. And uh, he was a, you know, a European, a European person who worked on Shabbos, came home came home in the middle of the day and um, made Kiddush and, and after he ate he opened the Gemara and was learning and I would go to him every Saturday afternoon for help in Gemara. I couldn't ask my father, I couldn't ask my mother, who could I ask? And, uh, but uh, I could go around the corner and ask him up front. He lived on the second floor, I remember it like yesterday, the front of the building and I would learn Gemara with him. He would help me, and I'd come back Sunday already. I was one of the lions in the class, because I, I, I 
went over the Gemara with, with Mr. Dash. And I was privileged that when he visited Israel, he came to see me teaching Torah, giving it to others. I mean, this is Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Call his memory fondly. Uh, by the way, his two sons went to MTA. I don't know what became of them. I'm, I'm afraid. I only hope some Yiddish type remained. Remember, they were basketball stars. One was a year older than me. One was like three years older. Uh, okay. All right. Now, now, now we go further, and we uh, start setting the stage. For what was obviously the greatest moment in the Robertson's life, Madison Square Garden. Charlie, let's be honest, if Rakevit was speaking in Madison Square, you know, in the Felt Forum or what they call Tedo Hulo or Theater, whatever that's called, I, I'll give you all the information when I get to it. <laughs> How many do you think would come? 30, 40? She filled every seat. Mark sitting here was there. My t there was, they say there was a standing room crowd only. That was the repetition. But how did it begin? Who would ever dream? And this was a once-only affair. But it resonates throughout Madison Square Garden history and Torah history until today, as you will see. Okay. So here, I want, want to quote from the book on the Rebbitson, beginning on page... 41, and uh, <coughs> we're going to meet up with another friend of ours here, uh, Reb Shleim Lekapach. It's interesting that the Rebetzin uh, evidently had very limited relations with Meir Kahana, one of our other heroes, but a much warmer relationship with uh, Reb Shleim Lekapach. And for obvious reasons, Reb Shleim and the Rebetzin were performers. They were public figures. They were actors. Uh, Schleimala already, uh, Mayer already was more of it. This was an ideologian in addition to his being a public figure, was more a public fighter than a public figure. So we go to 1972, the Bar Mitzvah of Yisrael Jungreis. So he was born in 62. So you can imagine the... Uh, <coughs> Jungreis reached um, North Woodmere in the 60s. And that's exactly my rabbinate, uh, Mayer's rabbinate, my rabbinate. We're all, uh, we're all from the same era. And um, every Shabbos during the summer, they'd be up in the mountains, up in the Frum Hotels. I don't know which one it was, Pioneer, Pineview, whichever one. And uh, she would be a speaker, and they'd be there for Shabbos. And um, here, Esther Jungreis would give her weekly lecture on the long Shabbos afternoon speech. And it would be on the lawn, and, you know, you would see all the people relaxed. The people would come to hear her. And quoting, this is Esther speaking, as a Holocaust survivor, I cannot tell you how much I am pained by what I see happening all around us. 
we lost so many millions of Yidden in Europe to the Nazi murderers. But instead of rebuilding our nation, instead of returning to our Father in Heaven, so many of our brothers and sisters are being lost to assimilation. I cannot describe the pain this causes me. It goes beyond all words. It's a holocaust of the soul. And that's exactly correct. A silent holocaust, a spiritual holocaust. Tell it what you wish. We see it today. It's overwhelming with the Biden administration. All the big Jews appointed to office, almost every last one is intermarried. By the way, what's the story with the new ambassador to Israel? Is he intermarried or... Is he, anyone know? Um, any married to a Jew? Any Jewish cognizance? Don't know. But you see what's going on. You look. And, and she's already speaking about this in 1972. And um, one time there was a very large crowd listening to her. Many of them were students belonging to a well-known organization. Could be she's referring to a group from Yavna. Uh, it, I, I don't know if Hillel would have been there listening to the Rebetzin. Does anyone here recall what Yavna was? Yeah. To, Mark, remember Yavna? You came. Yeah, you know, I, I spoke. Yeah, I, I know. But you, what was Yavna? Yavna was it was a forerunner to everything you have today happening on the college campuses. Today you have the uh, OU is involved. And, and uh, the Chabad is involved in addition to Hillel. And even Hillel has at least makes arrangements for, for anyone who's orthodox to have sheyurim and have kosher food, at least where there are large numbers of students. And, and Yavnu is a forerunner. It, it reached its zenith in the mid-70s, I would say. Uh, and, and it was, you know, these college kids and to be from and to feel kinship, that there's a minion, that there's a shear, that there's a Shabbos table. And um, a woman, one of the kids got up and asked the Rebbitson, what should we do? And what should we do? And the Rebetzin may be, you know, shooting off her hip, out of the hip. Yorem in hamutton, as the Hebrew expression goes. She shot back, I quote, If I had your organization, if I had your power, if I had your clout, your money, let me tell you what I would do, my friend. I would get on a train and travel to Manhattan where I would book a venue like Madison Square Garden. And once the garden was booked, I would advertise like crazy and invite the entire Jewish world to attend the event. And I wouldn't even charge them to come because I know how Jewish people feel about having to pay to go to shul. That's what I would do if I had the resources. 
Well, I have to tell you, this statement by the Rebbitzin, Madison Square Garden, it resonated, it carried. People gossiped, people spoke about it, but it's more. She was very fashioned here. She was ahead of her time. She understood. Tell me, what's the secret of Chabad? It's all over the world. No, Elliot, wherever you go, they don't charge you. Remember, I, I quoted to you a reformed congregation. The woman wanted to get in. They wanted, how much was it? Like $500 on Yom Kippur. Write a check. So she went to Chabad. Remember, I quoted to you. All right. The Chabad parking lot was filled on Yom Kippur. doesn't make me happy, but uh, Chabad doesn't charge. They're very smart. And then you'll pick up one Jew. You, you understand what happened here? Chabad came to Rechavia. When Chabad came to Rechavia, I remember saying to Maka, what the heck are they going to do in Rechavia? 80% of the Jews are from, and those that aren't hate Judaism. Their reason why they don't serve in the army, they don't pay taxes, you know, all. Some of it is true, some of it is canards, lies, whatever. Arye Dari, blah, 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 blah. Rabbi Berlin, I don't have to tell you what you can come out with. Well, what are they going to do here? What are they going to do? They began about a living presence, unbelievable. Megillah on every street corner. He had Shofar on every street corner. And they don't charge. They don't charge. Oh, you pick off. A guy comes in, sees what he likes. Rabbi, I'm leaving you a little gift. Puts down a check for half a million dollars. No, of course you don't have to charge. But you use Seichel. And, and here the Rebetzin, it's, it's she's like years ahead of herself. Here, this little sentence, she's predicting what Chabad would become, would be, in the year 2022. Okay. All right. She spoke at the hotel. But people gossiped. A few years, a few weeks later, was the kids' real bar mitzvah, celebrated at Terrace on the Park in Queens, and there was a large amount of guests, both yeah, the Rebetzin already was a personality, and uh, the Shul, North Woodmere, and who is entertaining Reb Shlemele Kalbach. And everyone is singing and dancing, and he introduces, in honor of the event, a new song, Yisrael. Notice the name, the Bar Mitzvah boy's name, Batach Hashem. He's introducing, the room is on fire, everyone is happy, Rav Meshulam, Esther, their son's bar mitzvah. Oh, what an event, no one wanted it to end, no one wanted it to stop. And finally, they're sitting around the tables, they're eating, and Rav Shlema Lekalbach takes the microphone and he says, quote, Mazel tov to the Jungreis family. With his radiant smile, Shlomo, I see him in front of my eyes. I just wanted to let everyone know that the Rebetzin is going to be gathering all the Jewish people together at a major event in the near future. And no one... 
knew what's, what's he talking about? What major event? And you know, he had evidently heard what the Rebbitsons said on the lawn, Madison Square Garden. Schlemmer Kalbach was a performer, was an actor, was a singer. Right or wrong? He understood Madison Square Garden. I'm not certain if you said to Reb Meisha Feinstein, Rebbe, we'd like you to give a shear and we're going to hire the felt forum at the Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure Reb Meisha would respond, would be happy. I'm not sure the Rav would be happy. You don't even know the story with the Rav. Charlie, true story, 1950. Five or 56, I have to check, I have a picture in Washington. The Rav used to give the Yodside Shear in the base Medrash, what they call the Harry Fisher Hall. Remember the base Medrash Yeshiva? What do they call it today? Is it still, I don't know, today, it's, it's been dwarfed. It's, it's the Harry Fisher base Medrash and Zeisman Hall. Aha, okay. But, uh, Zeisman Hall is the name of what? Of the building. Boy, I got to learn a lot of new names, but all right, Harry Fischel is still there. You know why the Rev gave the shear there? That's where Rev Moshe gave his shear. You know why it was switched to the Lampert Auditorium? The fire department told the yeshiva it's a fire hazard. Hundreds of people, no aisle, no way to get out, mobsing. Bidiever, Balkacha, Yanea, Main. They switched it to Lamport. Then when Lamport got full, so you wound up with the member connections, TV connections to the dorm, to to to, to Fischl, to the base Medrash, Lamport, to Morgenstern, but, ah, oh, understood what Madison Square means. Rebbitz and Esther understood Madison Square. And he made that announcement. Well, people didn't know, you know, Shlemel is speaking. Later that night, back at the home of the Jungreisers in Woodmere, the idea started to gel. And what the Rebbitson threw out now became the focal point of her existence. How do we work out Madison Square Garden? How do we go further? Okay, let me go drop further and bring you to the preliminary part and also very, very fascinating. This begins on page 4049. This story is told in the book. they started to talk about Madison Square Garden. How do you get the funds? How do you handle it? Here she is, Rebbitson in North Woodmere, a well-to-do community, middle class, upper middle class community, but uh, still doesn't have real strong backing. How do you get the funds? How much does it cost to rent a major venue like Madison Square Garden? And uh, the people sitting around in her living room discussing it, who do we go to? 
And uh, the Levitsons' closest lady was a lady named Barbara Janoff. Her confident, her close friend, stayed at the Levitsons' side for nearly 50 years. We'll talk about her in a little bit more depth. I knew her as well. And uh, they were amazing people. And Barbara Janoff said, you know, we got to get a sponsor. And they suggested a family in Lawrence, Mr. Wall, W-O-H-L. Now, I don't know this family. I know that uh, Yeshiva Kotel has had a lot of support from a Wall family from England. It could be they're interconnected if someone knows. Tell us. But they decided... Let's go to this Mr. Wall in Lawrence and ask him if he'll underwrite an event at the garden. Okay, who is this Barbara Janoff that becomes very close to the Rebbitson and really becomes the one who organizes this event and pulls it off? Barbara Janoff was involved in education. She had a doctorate. She taught in the city colleges. She was head of the United Parent Teachers Association of the Board of the Jewish Education in New York. She wasn't totally religious, but certainly had a strong religious feeling. She heard the Rebbitson speak, and that one talk brought the Rebbitson. Here is a woman who we would call Misoratit. Within a few weeks, she was wearing her shaitel. More than that, her husband, Dr. David Janoff, went along with her 100%. In a short time, the entire family was from. The kids had been transferred into religious schools and Barbara was walking around wearing a shaitel. She moved to North Woodmere, a few blocks away from the Jungreis family. She quit her teaching position at Queens College and took on a job as the Rebbitsons' executive director. And you have no idea how close these women were and how she not only understood the rabbits and appreciated the rabbits, but she knew how to utilize the rabbits. And here they decide to go to Mr. Wall to sponsor the concert. Well, they call up and here's the conversation. The phone rings in the Wall home. Is this Mr. Wall? Speaking, who is this? A businessman, he's a tough cookie. Who is this? My name is Rebetzin Esther Jungreis. My husband and I are the rabbi and the Rebetzin of the Art Torah Synagogue in North Widmere. What can I do for you, Rebetzin Jungreis? There is something of great importance that we need to discuss. When can I make an appointment to see you? What is this about, Rebetzin? Mr. Wall, I want to discuss the future of the Jewish people with you. Is that possible? I'm very busy. It won't take much time. It's very important. 
He was summoned, okay, I'll meet you at my home. They agreed on a time, and before she hung up the phone, she said, please, don't be late. No, what does that don't be late remind you of? Anybody. No, where are you people living? What do you people read? Steve Riskin, Zalman Bernstein. Remember, Riskin tells the story, wrote the story up. It's been translated into Hebrew. When he first, his Makar of Zalman Bernstein wanders into his shul to say Kaddish, and Riskin makes an appointment to meet with him, and Riskin is 15 minutes late. Zalman Bernstein keeps him waiting, says, Rabbi, you wasted 15 minutes of my precious time. He then wastes 15 minutes of Riskin's time. Now Riskin learned the lesson. You can't be, these are business people. Money speaks, money talks, every minute counts. Well, finally, they come, Barbara and the Rebbitson come to see Mr. Wall and make their plea, make their speech. But he's a businessman. What? He's talking Madison Square, reaching out to Jews who couldn't care less about Shabbat, Kashrut, Tarat, Mishpacha. And he says, Rebetzin, it's not my world. It's not something I am interested in. He was a, evidently a from family, but not his cup of tea. And is willing to say no. But sitting at the table with them was a fourth person. His wife, Rome, R-O-N-N-E, if I'm pronouncing it right. And here's the punchline that reverberates in Torah history. His wife said to him, after the husband said no, she said, I'm willing to sell every piece of jewelry that you gave me. I want to sponsor the event. The rest is history. Mr. Wall covered the entire cost, A to Z, of the Madison Square event, which changed, to a certain degree, history, the life of the Rebbitson, he named me, and all that happens afterwards. Okay, we'll pick up from here exactly where we leave off. And we have to be gearing up for the Satmarav who's peering over our shoulders. So to reiterate, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming. And uh, I, I hope it was an interesting shear. The Rebbitson deserves to be remembered in blue and white with gold trimming. And these were great people, people who rose above the crowd. You know, most people, even from people, Las Mitzuru, you know, leave me alone. I daven, I learn, I work. Today they'll say I do a dafyomi. What more do you want from us? 
but uh, these were people who rose above the crowd. So what, what do we do today? We had another family, the Feinberg family and their relationship and the Rebbitzin and the Upper East Side and the young lady who cried at the Rebbitzin's lecture. And I tied it in with Eliezer Ebed Avraham and I tied it in in memory of Gloria Zichrona Levracha. A very, very moving uh, memoir, I would say, in, in the volume I quoted. We spoke about the hotel, and the, but before that, the rabbinate North Woodmere Halloween, and Shlemala, we spoke about the young man who became a Ben Torah through Halloween. And if you can figure that one out, then you'll understand what Kirov Rechokim is all about. And then the lawn at the hotel, maybe it was the Pine View, the Bar Mitzvah, Shlomo Kalbach, and the Rebetzin Yafna, what I would do. Wow, you see Barbara Janoff, the Wall family, and Madison Square Garden. Uh, We'll come back later to the conversation between Esther and Mr. Wall, and, and I don't fault him. He uh, could be a very great Jew, but he's busy, and, you know, he's looking at this quizzically. You're going to change the world? We're going to change Madison Square Garden? Me, Madison Square Garden? Teitzei Torah? Devah Hashem from Mid-Manhattan? Yeah, all right, he's a little quizzotic. But a great lady jumps in. And that story of the jewelry repeats itself time and again of, of great women, great Rebbitsons who took their jewelry and sold it and mortgaged it and pawned it so that Torah should thrive. Ah, fabulous. Are there any questions? Okay. Just coming events next Sunday shear is very important. I'm opening up the heart of the problem of we Torah Jews in the big modern world. And this is the same problem. Reb Shemshel Hesh faced it. Mori Rebbe, Reb Soloveitchik faced it. And we face it today. And uh, if anyone has a black and white answer, kala kabod. But... Uh, the sources next week are fascinating. Uh, the Rambam, wow. Okay, but that's next Sunday. There's Rat Hashem, 9 a.m. Israel time. Uh, Mark, you have a question? You mentioned the Kemani with the books. Right. I remember when, it, when BMT and uh, I think it was Neely, one of the workers at the Yeshiva was the Kemani. Right. And I remember him showing off. Sitting down with us. Right. <laughs> no, we probably asked her. Show so he was able to turn the book around. Right, 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 right. No, they're showing off and we Ashkenazim fall frit Baruch Hashem 100%. But ain't hachinami. They can read from any angle and we cannot. Okay, Yomo. Uh, until we meet again in health and happiness, Tasvidanya. Open it up to the whole world that's listening. 
very fine individuals on the screen, one by one. Rebbe? Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, Tom, Thomas Knight, the new ambassador, uh, in 1992 he married Virginia Carpenter Mosley in an ecumenical ceremony. Oh, She's a vice God. president at CNN. Oh my God. There you go. And this is the, the ambassador to Israel. Ay, sickening, sickening. All right, our work is cut out for us. That's all I can say. But what a, yeah, what a disgrace the Biden family, everyone married to a Jew, and let me see one Jew among them who knows how to sing L'chad Dodi. Okay, yes, did you? Yeah. One, one other thing, your story, I mean, it's not quite the same thing. It's a famous story about Rapam that one of his Talmudim came to visit with his kala on Halloween night, and the Rebbitson was spending the whole night popping popcorn and putting it into little bags. And every time the door rang, she would uh, give it out to the kids at the door. I don't know if any of them were Jewish. I imagine a lot of them were. Uh, right. That's right. the, yeah, a very powerful said, story. And uh, that the kid boasts I'm the only kid who became from through Thanksgiving, through Halloween. It's, it's a top quality line, a top quality story. It's, it attaches our generation. As I said yesterday, we're the generation of the Balei Tshuva. Yeah, anyone else have a comment? Okay, so I see I... On Tisha B'Av, yeah. I went to the Kotel, Dafka, to see the Teimanim laying Eov after they're finished with Echa. And they sit around a circle on the floor and do it just that way. They have one safer, it gets passed from one person to another. Each person holds it a different way. At a different angle. And, and they, I heard that they do it, so I doctor went there. And uh, it's a social scene, but I still manage not to say hello to it. You can smile, though. <laughs> and, 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 and they read the whole Sefer Eev? I didn't stay for the whole time, but I know they were waiting for me at all. Uh, interesting, interesting, because we... Uh, uh, all right, well, what can we do? Tisha B'Av is Tisha B'Av, Yiv is appropriate, I'll put it that way. Uh, Tisha B'Av is appropriate. Instead of taking a rock and lying down on my head off. Uh, well, that's brought down in the halacha, the change uh, mode of sleeping, but I don't... No, but I meant that like with Yaakov. Yeah, no, no, I understand. But I, I just want to tell you that that too reflects how our bodies have changed. Um, brought down the halacha, we tell a guy to turn on the heat. Rabbi Moshe was already mad there to tell a guy to turn on the air conditioning. And I want to see one Jew who interferes with his sleep on Tisha B'Av. Our bodies can't take it. We got to, you know, it's brought down too. If you're not going to sleep well, so you don't have to take the pillow. You know, you take the pillow away. That's uh, not the sleep the way you normally do. But I have to confess that I sleep with one pillow on Tisha B'Av. During the year, occasionally I may sleep with two, but uh, on Tisha B'Av only one. I tried sleeping on the floor when I was young, but it didn't last too long. Uh-huh. Okay, this is, what can we do? We eat three meals a day today, we're, we, we have heat, we have air conditioning, we live, Kanain uh, Hara, you know my age, and today's year I was all of 23, that's all I'm willing to tell you. So we live longer, so all right, it reflects halachically as well. And you know what's happening now, they're trying to work out the uh, t- t- um, umbrella for Shabbos 
for those that need it. And I'll tell you something else, which I, I really think is a serious question, is as we grow older and we live longer, and you know, this is, you see all the advertisements today for senior citizens' residents. You never saw those advertisements years ago. And today, you open up any alone or any newspaper, and four or five different advertisements, people drinking L'chaim, it's like they're drinking wine. It began with Beit Tovei Hayir, and more advertisements, wine and good and smiling. Then you live longer, people can't walk. That's the biggest problem I see with the old age. If you remain healthy, but the feet give up on you. So I told you last week or two weeks ago, a dear friend of mine, a musmach of the yeshiva, a little older than I am, I taught his uh, part of his family, he bought his wife a, a mobile for Shabbos, for how to get the shoot. And uh, this past Shabbat, I saw another mobile go by uh, again, and it has a sign, it's a good Shabbat. Well, we're going to wind up having people live older, our day and age, we're going to have 10 mobiles on every block. Soon we'll have 20. What will Shabbat look like with all these mobiles going around with Bikud Shabbat? So it's something to think about. Where do we draw the line? Do we have to draw a line? Ah, oh, it's Rebbe, a... Rebbe, you saw that the mayor of Tel Aviv wants the, the light rail to run on Shabbat like, a, like, a, like an elevator, he said. He said if they can make it automatic, then uh, people can get it on and off. You know, uh, uh, he said automatic? If the, yeah, he said he, he said if it can have an elevator for Shabbat. He says, he if said the mayor of Tel Aviv, okay, he, he, halavai, if he said automatic, I have to admire him because he's a Mechal Shabbos with a capital yeah. M. And it's a yeah, yeah. and it and not, and not yeah, just that. In, this on the T, out there, on the green line, but <laughs> under specific conditions when they ever go to visit in a hospital on Yantif, possibly... The That's the conservative the movement began that you can itself. only drive to shul or to visit someone in the hospital. No, you saw what came out of it. Yes? I think there is a one train line in New York City subway that said completely automatic. Completely yeah, automatic? Almost, I, don't, I don't know the details. I know in Moscow it was a serious question, but did he get the shul? We're talking under the communists, but that I can understand. But uh, to talk about uh, Tel Aviv today, <laughs> to, to get to Dizengoff on Shabbos, all right, Mikabelitov, a lot of outreach is being done in Tel Aviv, and Halavai, we should be Matzliach, and more and more people should be settled in Tel Aviv, Lekabelitoferet. It hurts because Tel Aviv was once a center of, it was the center of Hasidut in Israel. There were more Hasidic courts in Tel Aviv than any other part of Israel, including Yerushalayim. And today, all right, this is uh, the right. reality. I think they said, there was a rabbi who said, they said, why, why do you prefer Tel Aviv over Yerushalayim? He said, because there are no churches in Tel Aviv. Right, that's correct. They attribute that to the Hushtan Rebbe. And also, the, the Belzer Rebbe, when he came in Aliyah, chose Tel Aviv over Yerushalayim. And when you'll hear my was lectures... <laughs> and when you'll hear my lectures on Satma, you'll get more insight into this. It may very well be that that's the reason the Satma Ruv left Israel, because he, had he gone to Tel Aviv, he would have been better off. Okay, we got, I, I want to thank everyone for participating in Oni Besorah Tovah, the land of Al-Kol Yisrael. And once again, I recall Tzvi Gnawa, 
fondly and with love and admiration. Zeichet Tzadik Levracha. Until we meet again in health and happiness. Tashvedanya.